0: In Acts chapter ten, um, some cool stuff is happening. I'm very excited about this. I, I can't even get to some of the stuff I'm excited about because we just don't have time today. But there's there's things you have to know in order to get excited about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So let's look at your notes. Your notes. And let's let's get where we left off at. So here's here's kind of the story up to now. Acts nine thirty one. The church enjoyed a time of peace, was strengthened, and increased in numbers. And that's way more important than it sounds. Because if you just read by and don't think about what that means, because they've, I mean, Stephen was just murdered a little while back. Peter and John were arrested. The apostles were arrested. Things have gone on. Saul was running around killing people. He just got saved. And and because of his salvation, and now he's not running around killing people, there's a time of peace. And it it just sounds like good news, but it's actually really good news because God is now going to do something that requires the time of peace. So it's not just an accident that there's a time of peace, and, and now some good things can happen because no one's bothering them. God created a time of peace by reaching out to Saul so that he could take the next big step in the history of the church. Remember, we're in a transition, a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And, and we're going to see some more of that transition. But this time of peace is exactly what they needed. They didn't need distractions going on. They didn't need people attacking them because God was going to do something huge in, in the life of Israel and the life of the church. And that's going to be next week. So there's a, there's a prime the pump for you. In Acts 9, 32-35, Peter healed a paralyzed man by commanding him to rise and walk, much like Jesus had done. We talked about sometimes, we just need to do what we see Jesus doing, and that's what Peter was doing. And we talked about how that only got four verses. Like, this seems like a really big deal to me. Someone's in bed, crippled for eight years. They can't walk, they can't go anywhere, they're completely being taken care of by someone else. Peter walks in. Says, get up and walk. They get up and walk. That's a pretty big deal, but only got four verses. And then we read uh, the next section, Acts 9, 36 through forty three. Uh, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. That's a that's a big deal, but it only got eight verses. The whole story, eight verses. And then we go to chapter ten. So we have a story that takes four verses, a story that takes eight verses. Someone's healed. And then someone's raised from the dead. And then we have chapter 10. And it's all about Cornelius and Peter. And this interaction they have, orchestrated by God. And it sounds like so much less of a deal than someone being raised from the dead. And it actually sounds like so much less of a deal than someone being healed from being crippled. But this one gets 42 verses in chapter 10 and another 18 verses in chapter 11. So, we have to look at that. These are some of the subtle things we look at when we read Scripture. And we're like, why does it say there's a a time of peace and and it increased in number and all these things happen and then we go here? Well, this is a common way that a Jewish person would communicate. They're going to start from small and they're going to work their way up to big. And so, what we can read here is that in this time of peace, the man being healed was fairly common. We can even read that someone being raised from the dead wasn't the greatest thing that happened. So we talked about how the apostles were this and that. Let's just look at our notes. Uh, We said that, number one, most likely this was happening with all the apostles. It wasn't just Peter going out and healing people. It probably wasn't just Peter raising people from the dead. All the apostles had the same marching orders. All the apostles had the same message from Jesus. All the apostles had the same power of the Holy Spirit. And all the apostles, as we know from history, went out and did great things and had great ministry. So it wasn't just Peter, but Peter was the one Luke talked to. And Peter was the the head apostle. He was the super apostle. He's called in a couple places. So we hear about Peter, but he's not the only one doing it. Number two... The work in Jerusalem was being transferred to James. And that's an interesting thing. The apostles are no longer in charge of everything. They're starting to give out some authority. They're starting to give out responsibility. The apostles are going, which is what they were commanded to do. And the pastors are now staying, which is what their job is. So the apostles are going out and the, and the, the pastors are staying. That's part of the transition. We talked about that. And then I didn't really say particularly, but I hope you caught, I want to mention it now, we must still say that. Number one, this fits exactly with Jesus' words in Acts eight. So we're going to have to turn there. So Acts 8 i I'll just read it to you really quick. Acts 1 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, this is what the apostles were told by Jesus, and it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power for what? Power to heal people? power to raise people from the dead? Well, apparently so, because that's kind of what's going on. And said, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, witnesses go and share the news. That's their job. In Jerusalem first. Well, they stayed in Jerusalem. The first several chapters of Acts are all in Jerusalem. Then it says, in Judea and Samaria. And we have Philip going to Samaria. And we have other apostles probably heading into, into Judea, which is basically north and south of Jerusalem. And to the ends of the earth, and now all of a sudden, we're seeing the ends of the earth being reached. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. We're going to talk about that, and and so we're we're moving out farther. So this is exactly what we'd expect in in Acts because of Acts one eight, and number two, that this fits perfectly with the role of an apostle. An apostle is to go. An apostle means one who's sent by God, one who's sent by Christ. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of. Christ's resurrection, and you had to have been taught by Jesus himself. And so the apostles went out to teach. And then number three, God is going to use this time of peace to make his next really big transitionary move. We can't forget the word transition. We're in a huge transition. So now to understand what God does, we need to have a little more context. That's also in your notes. So number one in context, please understand that God... Instructed the Jews to be different and separate from the rest of the world. Think back to the Old Testament. Think back to the Levitical law. Think back to everything you read in Deuteronomy—the the, all the ceremonial things, all the food restrictions, all the clothing restrictions. He instructed them to be different, and he instructed them to be separate. Don't you know? Don't intermarry. Only marry within the nation. Uh, follow your follow all the guidelines. And the purpose was. So that people on the outside would look in and say, wow, you are a blessed people. You are, you are blessed by God. You're protected by God. Uh, there, 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 no other nation is being treated by their God like your God is treating you. And then the Jews would respond, that's because our God is the only true God. And as they said, my God is the only true God, others would look and go, wow, well, there seems to be evidence of that. Please tell me about your God. And then foreigners would come and become part of the nation. That was the plan from the beginning. And that's what God instructed them to do. He did this to create a people who bore his identity and attracted others through it. They did it through ceremonial law, through dietary laws, the act of circumcision, through the pure bloodlines, how they dressed, how they worshipped. And, and we learned at Mission Connection, one of the classes, he even did that on how they, how they dealt with slavery. How they were different from the rest of the world and how they approached slavery and in, in particular indentured servanthood. They had indentured servanthood. Everyone else had slaves. And so he set them apart. He made them different. But number two, oh, and, and let's remember Ruth and Rahab. There's two examples. Ruth became part of the nation. She actually became part of the line of of, of Jesus. So did Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho and And Ruth was a foreign wife of a a Jewish boy whose husband died. You can read the story. Number two, the Jews took things way too far and created an identity that repelled most people away from their nation and their God. They took these things, they made them monumental, they held them against other people, they looked down their nose at them, And and they just made it so that nobody wanted anything to do with them and nobody wanted to be like them. Uh, Some of the rules they had was, uh, here's a a rule, that if you have a a table of food out and everyone leaves the room and a Gentile came into the room, when you came back, you had to throw all the food away because the Gentile being in the room contaminated the food. Does that sound like something God would do? No, that's something the Jewish people did. They had a rule about if if a Gentile ever owned something, you couldn't own it. If a Gentile produced it, you couldn't buy it. They had all kinds of rules like that where they were lifted up and everyone else was pushed was pushed down. They weren't allowed to do business with a variety of people, all kinds of stuff like that. So God intended the Jews to be an attraction, to be a, a fragrant, uh, attention-getting call to the nation's And the Jews took that, took it way too far and became repulsive to the nations. Number three, in particular for today, the Jews were fully racist towards Gentiles and vice versa. The couple things I've told you were were just one of, of many, one of maybe hundreds, at least dozens. They thought they were the best because they were chosen by God and no one else had anything to offer, had no value, and they, they literally looked down. You remember when Jesus wanted to go to Samaria, the, the disciples says, no, we go around. We, we don't walk through Samaria. We go around. Well, mainly because we might see one. We might talk to one. We might meet one. And then Jesus says, no, we're going in. I got reasons for going. And they went, and they stopped at the well, and they talked to the woman at the well. And they were shocked that he would talk to a Samaritan, let alone a, a woman Samaritan, at the well, and then he sent them in to buy stuff and then he stayed there for a while. The stuff Jesus did was shocking and, and that was that was extreme for the Jewish people, and the disciples were in a frenzy over it. The Jewish people as a whole were racist in, in every sense of the word we we use the word racist a lot, and we don't know what it means, and we use it incorrectly. they were actually. Full fledged racist. They thought they were everything and everyone else was nothing. This was a problem, not for the most obvious reasons. This was a problem because, as much as the nation of Israel was to be exclusive to attract others, the church of the new covenant is to be inclusive. The nation did not fulfill its role by attracting others to come be a part of our nation. And so, God has changed things with the new covenant, and he's introduced the church. And the church is not to be exclusive. The church is not to have rules about who can come and who can't come. The church is to welcome everyone, men and women, uh, foreigners, Jews, everybody. There there was not to be any class structure in the church. And so, that's a problem. Because the Jewish people had a class structure of Jew-Gentile. They also had a class structure of clean and unclean. And they had a class structure of wealthy and poor. And and there were clear lines between each one. So there's the context of what's happening in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to get to the point, Okay, looking forward a little bit, we're going to get to the point where Peter, the super-apostle Jew, is going to go into the home of a Roman centurion. The worst of the Gentiles. That's where we're heading. That's what's so huge, and that's why Luke has said, "Hey, you know what? We had a time of peace, and it was great. You know, th- cool things happened. This one guy who was lame for eight years, he got healed. That was pretty cool. And and right about that same time, uh, this this very loved lady in the church died, and, and they called Peter to see." what kind of words he had, words of wisdom maybe and this kind of stuff and then Peter healed him healed her, she just got up and went about her business, that was really cool, but the coolest thing that happened in the whole story let me tell you about it, and let me take a lot of time to tell you about it, because it's that big, and it's that cool and that's where we're heading, so that's that's some context let's read Acts chapter 10, 1 through 8 that's as far as we're going to get. I'm just going to call it chapter 1 of the story here. Acts chapter 10, 1 through 8, it says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Now that's a lot of details. Uh, we know where he lived. We know what his name was. We know where he worked, and we know what department he worked in. Okay, he's from Caesarea. That's a Roman city. Okay, he was named Cornelius, he was a centurion, that was his title and his job, and he was, he was known as uh, what is known as an Italian regiment, that's where he's from. So, why would Luke give us that information? Well, Luke is challenging anyone who reads this, who would literally read it and go, no way, that didn't happen. Any, any Jewish person and any Gentile person who knows the Jews would, would say, no way, that didn't happen. And he's right in the front, right at the beginning of the story, going, hey, you know what? Uh, go talk to Cornelius. He lives in Caesarea. He's in the Italian regiment. And he's a centurion. How hard is it to find a centurion? We'll look at your notes. Well, he was a Roman commander. That's what a centurion is of 100 soldiers. So he was in charge of 100 soldiers who worked alongside five other units just like his to form a 600-man cohort. Who, along with nine other cohorts, formed a 6,000-man military unit called a legion. And Caesarea had five cohorts, or half a legion, or 3,000 soldiers, that lived there full-time. So, one man of 3,000, that's, that's kind of hard. Um, you can narrow it down to one of the six cohorts, that helps. In the cohort, you can narrow it down to 100 men. And of that 100 men, you, lead it, you narrow it down to their boss. You could have walked up to a Roman soldier and in four or five tries you could have found someone who knew who Cornelius was in the in the city of Caesarea. And you could have found your way to him and you could have said, Hey, I got I heard this story. I need to find out if it's true. So Luke is saying, Hey, if you're a if you're a Gentile or a Roman and you want to check this story out, go talk to Cornelius. And the implication is that if you're a Jew or or you don't live in anywhere near Caesarea, go talk to Peter. Luke was all about the eyewitness, he was all about the facts. And he told us exactly who he was. So verse 2, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. Devout means religious. They were religious people. Him and his family were religious people and God-fearing. That's a term. You should underline that in your Bible, God-fearing, because it doesn't say what you think it says. We think it says he was a religious guy who feared God. But God-fearing is actually a title. They would have called him a God-fearer, in fact a God-fearer. It was a category of being a Gentile. We'll talk about that later. But it's a Gentile who has recognized God and is following him. So what the Jews were supposed to do to everybody, somehow they accidentally did with Cornelius. And Cornelius has said, wow, I've seen a lot of gods probably. I'm a Roman centurion. I've been around the block here. This God seems to be the real God. And Cornelius was taking steps to follow him. For example, it goes on. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. It's pretty interesting that the detail of three in the afternoon comes up. And we join that together with, he prayed to God regularly. The Jews had scheduled times they prayed during the day. One of those times was three o'clock. And Cornelius... Prayed at 3 o'clock. At 3 o'clock, he had a vision. It's the indication that he regularly prayed at 3 o'clock like the Jews. So he gave generously and he prayed regularly. So one day at 3 o'clock, he had a vision. He distinctly, I love that, distinctly, without question, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, distinctly saw an angel of God. I was trying to think of another Gentile. That was visited by an angel. I'm pretty sure this is the first one in the New Testament at least. Maybe in the whole Bible. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. So if you think of one, come tell me and I'll say, wow, that's yes, cool. But I, I couldn't think of one right off the bat. It's, it's pretty unusual for a Gentile to be visited by an angel. And I think Cornelius was aware of that. It scared him because, you know, they, they say, you know, don't be afraid. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He said he knew it was a messenger from God. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, God has noticed you. God has noticed your belief. God has noticed your effort. He's noticed your work. And it's been a memorial offering before God. Verse 5. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Not a lot of dialogue. There may have been more dialogue. We don't know. We're just giving what we need to know. And and it says, God has noticed you, so do this. Send some men to go get Peter. In verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius apparently has some people around him who are also God-fearers, who are believing in this Jewish God. They recognize him as the true God. He called them in and he sent them. Notice the immediate obedience. Soon as the angel's gone, when the angel had spoke and had gone, Cornelius called two servants. He immediately said, okay, I'm doing this. I don't know who this Peter guy is, but let's get him. He's going to be at the Tanner's house. He sent his people to get him and that's where we're going to stop because the next section is too long to cover today so we'll do it next week so let's figure out what we can learn from, from our text here so number one we already filled in the numbers there Cornelius was a Roman commander uh, number two he was God fearing and in parentheses, there's the three categories of a Gentile number one is it's just the word Gentile so that's what goes in that blank you could be a Gentile Gentile You could be just a Gentile, just a foreigner, just a pagan, just someone who doesn't believe in God, someone who worships other gods. That covered everyone who wasn't Jewish, was a Gentile. Then you had the God-fearers, or the God-fearing Gentiles. They were Gentiles who recognized God and were worshiping Him and serving Him, but had not yet converted. That's the third category, the converts. Some of these guys would have had a very difficult time converting because to convert would would mean that you left your previous associations, you left your previous um, even nationality, and you joined the Jewish nation. To join the Jewish nation, you had to do a a whole bunch of ceremonies, you had to be circumcised, and, and you had to commit your loyalty to the nation of Israel and it was a a huge process the Jewish people were not looking for converts in case you didn't know that that's how racist they were they were not looking for converts you had to kind of push your way in you had to say uh no I believe in God and I'm I want in let me in that's that's how they operated and Cornelius would have probably lost his job as a soldier, may even been punished if he had converted completely. And it would have been difficult. So he was a God-fearing Gentile. So we know he had authority as a centurion. He, he feared God. He was a God-fearer. Number three, he practiced as much Judaism as he could, still remaining a Roman soldier. He gave generously to those in need. Which fits what he would have read in Micah about true religion is caring for widows and orphans. He prayed to God regularly, which was would be a normal practice of someone who fears God. And he had his vision at three in the afternoon. We talked about that being a traditional prayer time. So he was probably praying at the same time the Jews were. So he was doing a lot of Jewish things. But number four is particularly important. He was chosen by God to be a part of something great. He was chosen by God to be part of something great. A uh, couple of things. A, he would become the first recorded Gentile believer. Maybe the first Gentile believer, maybe not the first Gentile believer. We don't know. We don't know who was first, but he's the first recorded Gentile believer. And he was chosen to have an encounter with Peter, who was the super apostle, he was the leader of the apostles. He was the most outspoken, he was the voice of the apostles, if you will. So be he along with Peter would remove the division between Jew and Gentile. That's the next great transition. When it's no longer us and them, now it's just we believers, we Christians. And and there would be a an encounter and there would be a A a visit by an angel and a vision to Peter, and these things would happen. And then see, in doing so, the church would take its next great leap forward. But don't miss that God chose someone who was seeking him. Cornelius was making an effort to find God, and God responded. And he said, my response to your effort is going to usher in a a whole new way of thinking for the church. And And there's, there's a connection there. Let's just go there uh, in your notes. What truths are on display in this first chapter? We only read eight verses. It's really the introduction to what's happening. It just gives us some background information. gives us a lot of context. But what, what can we learn from there? Well, number one, even under terrible conditions, God's truth is attractive to sinners. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. Even at this point in time, there was cause to think the emperor was at least divine and about to be a god, if not rumors of him actually being god. Uh, he, his loyalty was to the crown, if you will, and to no one else. That's not a great situation for, for evangelism. Okay? Cornelius was Roman. The Romans were oppressing the Jews. The Jews hated Gentiles, and they hated Romans as particular as Gentiles. They were the worst of the Gentiles because they were oppressing them. They were taxing them. They were telling them what to do. They were keeping them from doing what they wanted to do and and to do things the way they wanted to do them. So he was a Roman soldier. And then see, his job was to control the locals and promote Roman interests. So everything about Cornelius was in opposition to everything that made the Jews Jewish. That's a That's a fairly tough situation, but Cornelius in that situation was attracted to God. The other side of the coin, the Jewish people were not inviting Cornelius or anyone like him to come and see who God was. They weren't going, hey, hey, Cornelius, I know you're a Roman soldier, but you want to come to synagogue Sunday or Saturday? Hey, you want to come watch the sacrifices? Hey, you want to learn about the Old Testament? We'll teach you. No, they would have been like, get out of our face, leave us alone, we don't want you. They're, that's more bad situation. So even in terrible conditions, God's truth is attractive to sinners. And you know what I've learned lately? I hope you're picking up on this. I hope you're getting it. In in our terrible conditions, God is attractive to sinners. In COVID, God was attractive to sinners. In in the riots, God was attractive to sinners. If you want to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter, that creates attraction to God. Critical race theory, that attracts attention to God. The immorality that seems to be all around us, that we can't get away from, that we're trying to protect our kids from, makes God attractive. When evil is on display, God walks in the room, God is attractive. The gospel is attractive. You know, I grew up thinking that if I talked about Jesus, people would get mad at me. People would make fun of me. I might become a martyr somehow. You know, in a kid's brain. And As I got older, and you know, it's kind of my job to talk about Jesus and and, and this kind of thing, and I started doing that in various places. You know what I found out? People weren't angry or upset at all. A lot of them had questions. A lot of them were okay with it. Now, a lot of them chose not to not to engage very much farther because they realized it meant a few things about maybe their life and how they would have to live. But God is attractive. Sinners know inside that they have an issue. The knowledge of God is within all men. The knowledge of God comes with the knowledge that you need to be right with God. And it comes with the knowledge that a holy God will also be a just God. Once someone admits out loud, when they when they let their brain read the writing on the wall and they say, Yeah, okay, there's a God, they know that God now represents heaven and hell in their future. And and heaven is attractive. Forgiveness is attractive, a new life is attractive. The my life's not working, is there another way? Conversation is attractive. And and we should not think. That, that God and what God offers is not attractive. There's, there's foreigners getting saved in our cities because they've left the darkness where they lived and have come to America where we think it's dark, but it's nowhere near as dark as where they came from. They see the light of Christianity and they're attracted to it. And we have foreigners getting saved all over the place in our country. We have missionaries going out and we see people getting saved in dramatic ways all over the world. Even in the worst conditions, truth is attractive. And the gospel is attractive. Number two, God will reach out to anyone who is seeking to find him. God will reach out to anyone who is seeking to find him. Cornelius was seeking, and therefore God was determined, if not bound, to show himself to him. Here's a couple of scriptures. John seven seventeen says, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know... Whether my teaching is from God, or is merely my own. So Jesus is saying, "Hey, if you're looking for God, you're going to find Him in my in my words, and you're going to know that I'm talking from God." And and we're not Jesus. We don't we don't have that much knowledge, or that much authority, or that much power, or that much anything that He had. But I think there's a principle there. I think that when we speak the truth of God, I think other people kind of know it's the truth from God. Even if they want to argue or deny it, I think there's some knowledge there that, that's just bred into them. Jeremiah 29 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, this was a promise given through a prophet to a nation and to the people in a nation, but the principle still applies. Those who seek God will find him. You really think that God's sitting up in heaven and he's going, Well, Um, I'm glad you're looking for me, but I have no way to show myself to you because you live in a foreign country. Thank you for calling out to me if I only had resources. Do you think God has ever said, if I only had resources? Do you think God has ever said, wow, that's a tough one, I'll think about it. No, God is looking for people who are calling out to him, who are seeking him. And I believe God matches their interests. They say, man, the stars in the sky are huge. There must be a God who created them. I wonder who that God is. I think God's going to go, well, you know, it's the God that you already know about in your heart. And if they seek God, God's going to send someone to them. You know, he'll send a missionary. He'll send an angel. he'll, He'll send them a vision or a dream. He responds to those who are seeking him. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. If someone says, God, I, I want to know who you are, God's going to know, well, too late. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, eventually he will. Eventually, but not now. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. That's a, a great message of God's desire to share himself with us. Number three, third truth, God will do what it takes. God will do what it takes to get your attention and give you instruction. What did Cornelius need? Roman soldier? What does he need to go call a Jew to find out about God? He needed an angel. So God sent an angel. An angel who knew him by name. And gave him very clear instructions. He gave him orders, if you will, for a soldier. What did Peter need? We're going to read about this in, in, next time. But Peter needed vision. Because Peter was a Jew and he was a good Jew. And Peter, being a good Jew, was not going to enter the home of a of, of a Gentile. He was certainly not going to let a Gentile enter his home. He was certainly not going to do a lot of things that God was saying, Hey, Peter, I want you to do this. And if it hadn't been for the vision that God gave Peter... It wouldn't have taken place. So God gave them exactly what they needed. And God will do what it takes. He'll do what it takes to reach out to the person who's seeking. And he'll do what it takes to get the person with the answer to them. So number four, what's the last truth for today? We need to obey what we know God is speaking as soon as we hear God speaking. So that God's plans can move forward without interference or a slowdown from us. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think you can stop God from doing anything. You laugh. I think people think that. Oh, I said no to God, and now seven people aren't going to get saved. No. God is powerful. He's sovereign. He knows what you were going to do. God wants to use you. If you say no, he'll use the next person. If there is no next person, God will send an angel. If an angel isn't going to work, he'll send a vision or a dream. He'll do what it takes. Okay? The only thing we can do is slow down the process. When God says, hey, I want you to do this. And you go, well, I'll think about it. Well, how long do you need? Well, I'll let you know. Well, if I were God, I'd say, forget you. I'm going somewhere else. Well, sometimes he waits. I think we slow down the process. I think our obedience might speed up what God's doing, but it's certainly not going to stop it but I am going to tell you it's what he wants he wants our obedience he wants it when, we, when he asks he, he never says hey I got this command uh, I have showed it to you in, in scripture two or three times now um, about a year from now I'm thinking that would be a good time to obey it God's always like hey here's the command how about now how about we do this now and when we do it now you know what he says good Because now I've got something else for you. Now here's the next thing. Now here's your ministry. Now here's your task. Now here's your blessing. Now here's your lesson. God often, if not always, waits for us to do what He's saying now before He tells us what's next. Cornelius responded immediately. Peter will respond immediately. He has a little bit of an argument, I guess. But he responds immediately and and this, this transition takes place. And this transition is what allows us to be here today. The gospel going to the Gentiles is what we are all about today. We are Gentiles, folks. Most of us, probably all of us, we're Gentiles. The gospel has come to us. And now it is our job to pass it on to other Gentiles. And Jews, if we know any. So, the truth for today... Even in the worst of times, the gospel is attractive. We should not forget that. We should not fall away from that. Number two, God will reach out to whoever seeking him. Number three, he'll do what it takes. Number four, if I obey, I might get to be a part of it. That's a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what's coming. Thank you that you laid this out so we could tell how big of a deal this was, so we'd look a little deeper. Find some of these nuances and details. Thank you that, that you are a great communicator, and that uh, even us and even someone like me can figure this stuff out. Thank you so much for being that God and giving us that Holy Spirit. Pray that you would bless the baptisms, I pray that you bless Second Service. May what we've talked about spur us on to live more like you, to do good works, to listen and follow your commands. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.